The Wheel of Crime podcast is a true crime podcast that includes graphic and explicit content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Yosemite National Park is an American national park located in western Sierra Nevada of Central California. The park covers approximately 748,436 acres and sits within four counties. I'm going to really mess this word up. Tulane, Mariposa, Mono, and Madera. Roughly four million people visit Yosemite every year. Interestingly enough, the name Yosemite means killer in Miwok. The Miwok are members of four linguistically, linguistically related Native American groups indigenous to what is now Cal- Northern California. Um, and this was named after the tribe, which was driven out of the area and probably annihilated. Before being named Yosemite, the area was called Awani, Awani, meaning Big Mouth, by indigenous people. In February of 1999, the disappearance of a woman and two teenage girls rocked Yosemite National Park. In March, they found the burnt-out car that the woman had rented to take her daughter and a foreign exchange student on a road trip with two bodies in the trunk. An anonymous letter sent to police leads them to a third body. In July, police find a decapitated body in a drainage ditch. What on earth was going on in Yosemite? Who was responsible for destroying the tranquility of one of America's favorite national parks? The answer to that question would stun a nation, leaving us asking, how did this happen? And why didn't we see it coming? Megan and welcome to the Wheel of Crime podcast. Whatever you're doing right now, thanks for listening. Let's get the business out of the way. If you want to interact with the show, you can find us on Facebook. Search for Wheel of Crime podcast. Find us on Instagram at Wheel of Crime podcast or you can email the show at wheel podcast at gmail.com. All the information will be in the show notes if you want to check us out. If you'd like the show, the podcast a little bit of support you can donate on anchor.fm slash wheel of crime podcast 
Or you can go to PayPal and donate to Wheel of Crime Podcast at gmail.com. For your dollar donation, you will receive an awesome Wheel of Crime Podcast sticker. For donations between 3 to 5, you'll receive a sticker and a magnet. And for to- donations at $20 or more, you will get to choose which case or topic the show will cover. And you'll receive a special shout out on the show. And maybe even have a guest spot if you'd like. Tempt, tempt, tempt. Same goes for those who donate to the Music Maestro's GoFundMe page. Donations will, made will get you podcast merch, and any donations over $20 means you get to choose the case you want to hear covered on the podcast. Now, we did get a listener donation for Aaron's page over the weekend. Thank you to Marcy Kelly of Indianapolis for your generous donation to our music maestro. Marcy will get to choose which case she wants to hear on the show, which will be coming up in a future episode. All right, so now that the business is out of the way, let's get to today's episode. This is part two of episode number nine, Stranger Than Fiction, The Stainer Brothers, The Yosemite Killer. I said Yosemite, didn't I? Damn it, Heather. Yosemite. The Yosemite Killer. Okay. That's probably not going to be the first time I make that mistake. Every time I see that word, I think about her. Anyway, if you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and listen, or this episode isn't going to make sense. I mean, it will, but kind of won't. Go ahead. I'll be here when you get back. Hey, welcome back. My cat says welcome back. Last episode, we talked about the abduction of Stephen Stainer and how after seven years of being kept from his family and raped nearly nightly by his abductor, pedophile Kenneth Parnell, uh, Stephen saved another child, Timothy White, from the same fate that he had suffered. Now, speculation exists that Kenneth had dug a grave for Stephen as he was probably going to kill him rather than set him free because he became too old for Parnell's liking. But other than hearing that on the podcast, Voice of the Victim, I can't substantiate that, but it would make perfect sense. And if you get a chance, go back and listen to that podcast. It's pretty good. In this episode, we're going to discuss Carrie Stainer, Stephen's older brother. Now, Carrie was merely 11 years old when his brother was kidnapped and for years would feel tremendous guilt because he felt like he should have walked home with Stephen that day. Stephen's disappearance changed the dynamics in the house and rocked their community. It absolutely crushed their parents, Delbert and Gay, and Kay. Delbert became withdrawn and moody, snapping at his children and becoming as distant as their mother were before. He was full of laughter, hugs, playfulness, but not anymore. It really affected the remaining four kids, and they suffered for it. It has been said that Del saw Stephen as his, quote, real son, and that left Carrie feeling abandoned and neglected. From then on out, Carrie's identity was wrapped up with his brothers, and he became the boy whose brother was kidnapped, and everything became about Stephen. I know. Carrie would suffer from trichotillomania, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which caused him to impulsively pull his hair out, so he wore a lot of hats more often than not. In almost any picture that you see of him when he was younger, he had hats on. He was very good at art, and other kids at school thought that he would be a, a, a cartoonist because of his amazing art skills. There was a lot that even said, hey, I'm really surprised he hasn't become a cartoonist yet. However, as he got older, people thought he was kind of strange. He never really had girlfriends because he didn't know how to talk to women. When I first heard about this, I found that very odd because he's really a good-looking guy, and he wasn't a bad-looking kid. But the creepy factor is what kept him from getting close to anybody. There was an incident when one of his sisters had a friend over uh, where he waited until they went to sleep, and he would stand over the girl until she woke up and saw him, and that happened a couple times. And then he tried to touch her and then expose himself to her, but she was having none of it. He simply was unable to create personal relationships. 
And maybe that is part of his creepy factor, why he couldn't get close to anybody because of the dreams or fantasies that he would have as a child. Perry claims that he was molested by his uncle when he was 11, the same year that Stephen was abducted. This same uncle was murdered in 1992 while Carrie was living with him, and it remains unsolved to this day. And looking at what Carrie would later become, it makes one wonder if he exacted revenge on his uncle, or if it really was completely random. He said he loved him, but this incident where he molested him really messed his head up. I don't know, it makes you wonder. Most of the people who were interviewed from his high school and neighborhood would say that he was just a regular Joe. He was a bit of a loner. He was quiet, maybe slightly creepy, but would never, they never would have imagined that he would be capable of murdering four women. But if we delve a little bit under the surface, we can definitely see a dark soul in the works. Before he became a teenager, he had violent fantasies of women being gang raped. Fantasies like that tend to escalate, as we saw with Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. I'm not even going to comment on that, dude. But anyway, I wonder, with his impulsive hair pulling, if he had other impulses that he couldn't control, and perhaps that's what causes this kind of escalation of violent fantasies to manifest in the way that it does. Getting a taste wasn't good enough, and at some point, tasting was no longer an option. It had to be the whole hog. When Stephen returns, it's not the wonderful family reunion that we all imagine it would be. Stephen was now a teenager and a relative stranger to his family at that point. Carrie was less than enthused about having to share his room with his brother now, having to give up his cherished privacy. As I mentioned in the first episode, go back and look at the press conference they had in front of his house and watch Carrie in the background. He's really easy to spot. He's the dude that's scowling and wearing the hat who's staring daggers into the back of Stephen's head. Real easy to spot. Because Stephen wasn't used to the rules, it was very hard for him to adjust to this, and Carrie, being the older of the two, felt it was his responsibility to make Stephen comply. Because of the issues at school and at home, Stephen didn't stick around. His father eventually kicked him out of the house, causing Stephen to feel like he really was damaged goods. So damaged, his own father wouldn't touch him anymore just to hug him. That's incredibly sad. After high school, Carrie really didn't find his place in the world, so he sought refuge in the beauty of Yosemite. The one thing that Carrie really enjoyed and felt freedom in was nudity. He would drive around, smoke pot, and just enjoy being nude in nature. People who knew this part of him would say that he wasn't creepy or trying to hit on anyone when he was at the nudist colony, for example. It never was about, hey, let's get sexed up. It's just, I don't want to have the restriction of being in my clothes right now. He was just being who he was in his own skin, and that was the only way he felt comfortable. It was around this time that he thought he saw Bigfoot, and this would have a huge impact on his life, and he would tell this story to anybody who would listen. Um, he began to obsess about this, about this, and it kind of became a sticking point for him. In 1989, Stephen died after being hit by a truck while driving home from work on his motorcycle. This was a hard time for the family, so as soon after this, Carrie's uncle, who the one who had allegedly molested him as a child and with whom he was living, was shot and killed in a home invasion. It all seemed to happen in such a short period of time, and because of this, Carrie had several nervous breakdowns. He told co-workers that he felt like driving his truck through the shop, killing their boss and everyone else, and then torching the place. But he doesn't seek professional help. But that isn't surprising, given Dell's reluctance to seek help for his son, Stephen who had undergone tremendous trauma 
no, no, he'll be okay. It's okay, he just won't think about it anymore. And it doesn't work like that. Maybe in their family, manly men don't ask for help, but by telling his coworker this about himself, maybe this was his way of crying out for help, but to no avail, he's a totally lost soul at this point. And this is when he begins to dream about killing them and not just fantasizing about gang raping them. He's dreaming about killing them now. In the fall of 1997, he went to El Porto and lands a job as a handyman at Cedar Lodge, just seven miles outside the gate of Yosemite. He could sunbathe there naked and not have to deal with the stress of the real world. It was his escape. While he was usually on his best behavior and hardly anyone ever noticed anything off about Carrie, one coworker did notice. Trisha Hance had noticed he, that he would just stare at her daughter for an uncomfortable amount of time while she was swimming. Trish, and this wasn't just a mother's intuition, she really saw him for what he was. Trisha warned Carrie to stay away from her, from her kid or she would destroy him. She said he was cold and hateful, and while some of the other co-workers thought she was being irrational because he was such a good guy, it turned out that she was the only one who saw him for exactly what he was, whereas everyone else just accepted him at face value and the mask that he put out there. In 1998, Carrie was planning on raping and killing his girlfriend and her two young daughters, but chickened out because a male caretaker was on her ten-acre property. Now, there's a clip on YouTube where one of these women's daughters, or one of these women's daughters uh, named Lena, talks about Carrie always bringing them beanie babies and teaching them how to swim. She had really good memories attached to this man, but finding out what he was planning on doing to them was really terrifying to her. So... Here, here he is. Go ahead and listen to her. My name is Lena, and I grew up in a small town right outside Yosemite National Park. I had not been back to the Cedar Lodge until last year, and it sent chills up and down my spine. My sister and I met Carrie in 1998. My mom was a waitress at the Cedar Lodge where Carrie was a maintenance man and lived above the restaurant. We were excited when Carrie would come over. He taught us how to dive in Cedar Lodge. He would buy us a new Beanie Baby almost every time we saw him, because that was pretty big in the 90s. I see that Carrie's arrested on TV, and I remember being very, very upset, thinking, there's no way, there's no way. I was, I remember crying. Shortly after the FBI came to our house and spoke with my mom privately, they were there to let her know that Carrie Stainer had confessed to initially wanting to kill my mom rape and kill my sister and I and he didn't it didn't happen it's hard to think about that there were three separate times that he had planned to kill us I don't I still don't believe it part of me doesn't believe it I think that he was going to keep trying I think that he wasn't going to stop killing and we were his initial victims and I don't think he was going to stop after he had been arrested and learning that he was responsible for the death of Julie and Sylvina and Carol. We had our Beanie Babies and we actually sent one down the Merced River on a little wicker float to kind of give our peace to everything. It was the peace Beanie Baby of the peace bear we sent down the river. And I think it helped my mom. It was her idea and her way of kind of giving peace. I don't think I understood. I didn't believe what was going on still then that he actually could be capable of doing something like that. It's hard for me to think about him being behind bars 
and I wonder what it's like for him being there because he loved to be outside and I know that he loved Yosemite. I know that he loved being at the river. I know that he loved nature. So that's all taken away from him. And in some way, it's sad. But I also don't forgive him. I can't. But at the same time, it's hard to think that he even did it. I, I still have a hard time looking at him as a monster. I just remember him being the fun. Every time Carrie came, it was, it was fun. Or, you know, where we got new Beanie Babies. It was a good time when he was around. I was excited when he was around. Now I don't even know how I'd be able to look at him. But within a year, he would finally find his victims. Most people don't travel to Yosemite during the cold months, but some do just to have some privacy and not have to deal with so many tourists, you know, the off-season. So on February 15, 1999, Carol's son brought her daughter Julie and Argentinian foreign exchange student Salvina Peloso to Yosemite on a two-fold trip. They were visiting colleges and they wanted to experience Yosemite together and then they were going to go on to see the Grand Canyon. They wanted to give Salvina a very American tour and they wanted to see it themselves. They thought this was really awesome. So they rented a red Pontiac and set out on their way. They enjoyed their day at Yosemite and went ice skating and had dinner before retiring to their room which was on the opposite side of the lodge from the lobby in a dark corner of the lot. So it is as far away from the lobby as possible. That's not good. Uh, Carol called her husband, Jens, and told him that she and the girls were going to be going to uh, Yosemite one more time in the morning and that they would meet up with them at the San Francisco airport. But little did they know that they had gotten the attention of Carrie Stainer and all the rage and anger that had been building in him for all these years finally surfaced. He explained that he had looked in their window, he explained to the cops, he looked in their window and saw only one adult woman and two girls and with no man. Seeing these women, vulnerable and alone, made something in his head click, and he decided that this night was the night that all his dreams would come true. The weekend before, Carrie's, or in the weekend before, Carrie's fantasies had become so intense that he had prepared a murder-slash-rape kit containing rope, duct tape, and a serrated kitchen knife, to which he had later added a gun and a camera. He said that he had stalked four young girls staying at the lodge, but backed off when, noticed, when he noticed that they were accompanied by an adult male. Oh, gosh. So scary. Soon he saw Carol, her daughter, and Sylvina, who had no male accompanying them. So one night, on, on the 15th, he tricked them into letting them into, uh, into their room by posing as a maintenance man. He's saying, you know, we can switch you, we have to switch you rooms, you know, there's a leak, I have to come in and inspect it. She's like, no, no, no. He's like, okay, well, we can switch you rooms, it's no big deal. She's like, I don't have to, I don't have to deal with that hassle. So she lets him in. So anyway, where was I? This, was, this, this whole thing just gets to me. So after getting inside the room, uh, he pulls out his gun, which he would later tell Julie's son was unloaded. Um, he bound and gagged the two girls and put them in the bathroom. He took Carol, or he left Carol in the bed in the bedroom where he strangled her and then put her in the car. So he got her out of the way right at the beginning. So after she was out of the way and in the car, he returned to the room, pulled the girls out, and began a six or seven hour 
all I can say is it was a torture session because he would sexually torture and assault the girls, trying to force them to do it on each other, trying to get them to have sex with each other for his pleasure. But anyway, after this, he grew really frustrated, not only with their lack of cooperation, but at his own failure at maintaining a hard-on. So he strangled Sylvina and put her in the trunk next to Julie's mom. And I think that he had taken Julie in the bathroom at this point because he didn't want her to see what he had did, what he was going to do to Sylvina. But anyway, um, yeah, took her out to the car, put her next to Julie's mom, and then afterwards he assaulted Julie and then took her to the point uh, near Lake Don Pedro where he slashed her throat and then dumped her off the, off the roadside. I think he kept her alive for a day or two, though. He wanted to have his time with her. So anyway, the following day, Jens and the other three children were waiting at the airport to pick, you know, his their mom and sister and Sylvina up, but nobody ever showed up. Now, figuring that he misinterpreted Carol's instructions, he went on to Arizona without the trio. Now, you have to understand this is before cell phones. This is 1999. Yeah, they had cell phones back then, but I don't think that they had them because uh, they were all talking through the... Uh, hotel phones so anyway the, they all went on to Arizona without the without the trio but after arriving in Arizona he realized he couldn't reach her at the Cedar Lodge and then grew concerned so he called up to the lobby and asked if they checked out to which they were told you know he was told no they hadn't checked out yet not in person but the clerk goes on to the room because you know sometimes people leave the key behind and that's exactly what she sees she goes to the room. She sees that it's empty with the key left behind. The car was gone, and there were wet towels on the floor, which to them indicated that three women had taken a shower. They assumed that the girls had left without checking out, you know, in the lobby, just leaving the key behind. After that, Jens filed a missing persons report with Mariposa County. Thinking that perhaps they got, on, they got lost in Yosemite, they launched a large, massive search, and the FBI and other law enforcement personnel would join the search. What's crazy is during this whole effort, they would find 27 stolen cars, but not the red Pontiac that, had, that, that the Carol's son had rented. Carol's father at this time offered up a $250,000 reward for any information leading to the whereabouts of his daughter, his granddaughter, granddaughter and Sylvina. In Ukiah, where Carol was from, her family, uh, the Carringtons, were, a, were major players in real estate, and they had a large pool of money with which to assist the, in the investigation, and they spared no expense. On February 19, 1999, a teenager walking down the road 85 miles northwest of Yosemite in Modesto, California, found a plastic wallet insert with credit cards and a driver's license belonging to Carol's son, but there was one credit card missing. It was a Wells Fargo account. What this told investigators was that they'd left Yosemite and made it as far as Modesto. But they launched an inquiry as to how they could have traveled all that way without being seen by anybody. Time went on and people began to think that there was a killer on the loose at Yosemite, the last place on earth that anyone would want to feel unsafe. So police decided to go back to Cedar Lodge and do a forensic analysis on the room where the ladies were last seen. The one thing that they noticed was that this, at this time of year, there weren't many people um, over there. And of that wing on that day, Carol and the girls were the only ones to occupy a room. So of all rooms in that wing, they were the only ones. That's very scary. 
Police had already swept the room and did fingerprint checks, so they didn't feel like they were going to get any evidence, but they dismantled the room bit by bit. What they found was everything was in place, but the only thing missing was a blanket and a pillowcase that went with the room, so it was a pink pillowcase. So they went back to the wallet insert. No leads were really generated from that, but they did notice that there was a Wells Fargo card missing, like mentioned before. Someone was trying to access that account through the phone and made several attempts to gain access, but were not successful. Now, phone records led them to two ex-cons named Eugene Dykes and Mick Lorick, who were half-brothers, who were already in police custody on unrelated charges. Their backgrounds make them look really good to the police as possible subjects because the rap sheet reflected violent crimes like rape, armed robbery, etc., McLorick denies having anything to do with the murders, but Dykes is swearing to be damned that they did it. A month goes by before they get any major breaks in the case. On March 14, 1999, a tip came into the FBI from a man who was walking in the woods. He found a burnt-out car that had patches of red, and he knew from the extensive media coverage that they were looking for a red Pontiac. The place where he found the car was kind of an out-of-the-way area, close enough for anybody to stash the car there, because it is close to the, to the road, but far enough into the brush where it would be covered from view. The next day, the car was processed to try to get as much evidence as they could, and they searched the entire area, and about 60 feet away from the car, they found Carol's purse. Inside were cameras from the trip and personal effects of Carol's. In the trunk, they find two burnt bodies, uh, who through dental records were identified as Carol Sund and Sylvina Peloso. The film and the camera, uh, and both the cameras were processed, and it showed what everybody expected, pictures of them having fun at Yosemite and in the room. But where was Julie? Was it possible that she was alive? Without any other evidence to the contrary, that was the hope of the investigation. But merely days after the discovery of the car, their hopes were dashed when the Modesto police received a crude map describing where they could find Julie's body. Written on the map was the phrase, we had fun with this one, suggesting there were two perpetrators. They follow the map and indeed find a body, and because it was so badly decomposed, it had to be identified through dental records. And it was in fact Julie Sund. They were able to get a DNA profile of a possible perpetrator from the envelope in which that letter was sent, but it wasn't a definitive profile, and it came back as possibly being that of a Hispanic person. So, of course, they think they already have the murderers in custody. Remember, this was 1999, and DNA technology was not nearly as advanced back then as it is today. The only thing they could find for certain was a partial fingerprint, but they still couldn't process it. As summer came back around, so did the tourists. One visitor to Yosemite was Joey Armstrong, a young woman with bright blonde hair and a spunky spirit. On July 21st, 1999, she was prepping for a back backpack trip through the park with some friends. By the next day, her friends called the National Park to request a, wel a welfare check for her. Rangers arrive and find her car still there, her front door open, and music playing through the cottage. How creepy is that? They formed a search party and in a drainage ditch not far from her cottage, they found her decapitated body. It was obvious by the condition of her body that she fought really hard for her life, but she was ultimately sexually assaulted as her pants were pulled down around her knees. They found a tire, or they found a tire and foot impressions and processed those too. To detectives, it looked like uh, different tires on one vehicle. They found her head not very far from her body in the ditch. 
It is so sad. People visiting Yosemite became afraid. Witnesses uh, told police they saw a distinct color utility vehicle, an International Scout, which was light blue. Now, remember from episode one when Steve and Judy's undoing was that distinctively colored utility vehicle? Now, if you haven't listened to episode one, pause this and go back and listen. Go ahead. I'll wait. I'll be here when you come back. Hey, welcome back. Someone ends up seeing this vehicle in El Porto, and they find a... and the police converge, and they find a naked Carrie Stainer smoking weed and enjoying his day off. He allows them to search his vehicle, but they find nothing incriminating, so they let him go, but keep coming back to asking questions. They interview his co-workers as well, and they all say he's a nice guy. No way could he do something like this. Now, two cops had seen him in the area in Yosemite and around uh, where these other people had seen him, too, and they ask him more about his whereabouts on that day, but he denies that he was even in the area. Now, this raises a huge red flag to police. Why would he lie about something simple like that? What else is he lying about? So they compare the tire impressions with his tires, and lo and behold, they're a match. On July 23rd, 1999, they go to arrest him, but he's gone. Police put out a, an APB throughout the resort, and the next day a tip comes in, and he's at a nudist camp in Yosemite. He's eating in the restaurant, and he is fully clothed when they arrive. When he sees them, he immediately stands up and puts his hands on his head, which they thought was odd, but it, it's cr quite obvious he already knew why they were there. During the ride to the station, one of the officers asked him if he was Stephen Stainer's brother. During this discussion, he could see that Carrie was still in a lot of pain about his brother's death and what they went through as children. The police officer asked him about closure and says it will help him to heal if he could get closure on that. Uh, so even, even the cops were saying, no way could he have done this. He's such a nice guy. But soon, the officer who asked about Stephen would get an earful. He told the officer that he was a bad man, that he confessed to killing Joey. He told him that she fought hard after he got her in the, in the car or the truck and tied up her hands. As they're driving down the road, she managed to jump out of the truck. Badass. That's why he killed her, she said, because she fought so hard. But let's get real, he probably would have killed her anyway because she could identify him. I mean, why would he leave her alive? They weren't expecting what he would say next. So he told them, hey, I can give you closure on another case too. The, the case of those three girls. And with that, he confessed to killing Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. It was his fantasy, he said, to have sex with two young girls. And that's what triggered these murders. He admitted to throwing Carol's wallet insert on a corner in Modesto to throw the cops off. He paid a boy to spit in a cup, and that's the saliva he used to seal the envelope and mail the letters to the cop. He admitted to trying to muddle the investigation by using the phrase, well, we had fun with this one. At trial, Joey's, Joey Armstrong's mother said she didn't believe in the death penalty and therefore the courts gave him a life sentence for her murder. However, in the fall of 2002, he was not so lucky, as Carol's family did believe in the death penalty and rallied hard for that sentence. They were granted their wish when the judge presiding over the case sentenced him to death for the murders of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. He is still alive today and currently sits on death row in San Quentin with the likes of Scott Peterson and formerly Richard Ramirez, who died in 2017 of B-cell lymphoma. There are currently 647 murderers awaiting execution at that notorious prison.
But that's it. That's the strange story of the Steiner brothers. One was a hero and the other was an absolute horror. Email me at wheelocrimepodcast at gmail.com if you have comments on the case or you want to discuss it. And uh, let me know what you think. All right, let's get ready for that spin. All right, everybody, it's time. Time to spin that wheel. Here we go. wheel is not cooperating very much today. All right, and the next time we meet up, we're going to be talking about celebrities who have killed. Yay. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you're up to date on all the newest episodes. Support the show by rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you download podcasts. And tell your friends about it. Word of mouth is the best way to support the show. Don't forget to check out the GoFundMe page. Uh, Send me some emails. Check out our social media. Keep listening. Have a great week. And don't be a dick. That was it. That was the end of the show. I gotta go wash my butt now. Bye.